good to be here, good to be back. I know last week I was in Jersey with um, all my, uh, my uh, wife's family. There's uh, eight, 18 now, 19, I've lost count. Uh, cousins, they're all under 13 years old. So just imagine that. It's a blast, it truly is. But it's good to be back, good to be back. Um, we were working through the book of Hebrews before the Advent season, so we're jumping back in Hebrews. If you want, in the Red Pew Bible, um, we are picking up at the end of chapter 6. Um, and so that page number, which I um, did not do before, is going to be, for those who are kind of new to the faith and still navigating the big, long Bible here is on page 1187, and we'll be doing to page 1188 to this morning. So in current times, as you're flipping there, as we kind of prepare ourselves this morning, uh, our, our day and age today has a massive increase in spirituality and a decrease in church attendance. Those two things shouldn't be, but they are. People are more than ever, perhaps, interested in spiritual things, but churches across our country are really struggling in terms of these, these spiritual seekers finding a home or even going to the church to look. Uh, there's different, you know, phrases people come up with that kind of identify these people, but, um, you know, spiritually homeless people, we can call them. People who maybe want to know God, who want to be perhaps followers of Jesus, but there's maybe reasons that have kept them from um, returning to the church. I'm just go through some of this. Um, maybe perhaps there's a lot of people, especially in the Gen Z uh, uh, generation who a lot of the kids who, who are not so much kids now they're becoming adults they grew up in church but got burned by the church got burned by some Christian leader right affairs toxic church cultures maybe just going to churches that had really just bad Bible teaching uh, personality driven church cultures where that personality goes down in sin and failure and the church goes down with it and the list goes on and on and this has really caused a lot of people especially in that Gen Z and even my generation to kind of hold the church like at you know arm's length or maybe even attend I mean, this is some of you even this morning maybe you're here and you're attending but, you, but you're even kind of holding the church at arm's length like you're holding, you know, taking a deep dive into the family life here of growing in Christ. You're just kind of holding it at arm's length for trust issues, you know? Because the one way to describe, you know, some of the issues is you read all these polls, they do all these, you know, work understanding why are people not kind of, there's an interest in Jesus, but not a lot of people are going to the church. Like, what is this? And a lot of people have trust issues. Trust issues with the church. Trust issues with people, perhaps just trust in general. Maybe the idea of following Jesus alongside of a church family just simply carries with it a lot of baggage, and you just kind of feel exhausted by it, and you're not really ready to commit to something like that. And so you hold the church out at arm's distance, not really ready to entrust yourself to those around you and together follow Jesus, which is the design of the church as, as, as Jesus set up the church. But here's, here's the reality, you know, when, when our trust is burned, and this is 
where this can be, you know, people sinning against us, leaders who are, are guilty for their fall, or perhaps, you know, whatever reason it might be, you know, we can, maybe different time, different day, but at the end of the day, you know, when we get burned by trust, there, there's a hope that we tend to place on people or on institutions, and sometimes maybe that hope is a little too high, Right? Maybe we, we were placing our hope in the wrong things. And really, if you kind of zoom out and look at this idea, you know, that all sin is really rooted in placing our hope in the wrong things. And when we place our hope in the wrong things, we're going to find ourselves eventually kind of getting bitten or burned by what we're placing our hope in. And so I hope this morning to kind of bring a healthy vision of what the church is what the call of Christ is to be a part of the church, to be kind of some here along in this sermon. But I want to kind of hopefully, you know, be reoriented to look at God himself, look at his son Jesus, look at the ministry of his spirit, and see how there's an unchangeable nature to him that says even if, if there, we do have trust issues and even if there's um, been some struggles along the way that we're holding things at arm's length and um, that uh, um, God himself and his promises that they never fail us and Jesus who is the ultimate senior pastor and priest of this church, of the church that he also will never fail you. If we turn to that building block we're going to find ourselves in a healthy kind of uh, 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 progression of next steps for us as we want to re-engage the work that God has gave us as a church to do. So this is kind of what the text is about this week. And so in order to kind of set us up here before we look into verse 13, which is where we're at in chapter 6, um, the last sermon I think was about five weeks ago. So just remember the sermon from five weeks ago. I'm just kidding. Probably none of you, you know. It's, it's actually an interesting thought as a pastor. Like, how many of you remember my sermon from five weeks ago? Is that, yeah, yes, okay, you know. But um, I had to look at my own notes. So if that makes you feel any better. Um, five weeks ago, we looked at how uh, 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 this, this author this, this, uh, who wrote Hebrews, he was concerned with those who were receiving this letter with their own salvation and deliverance from sin and their own growth, their own spiritual maturity in Christ and how some of them seem kind of stuck in their spiritual growth as they followed Jesus and how for all of us, to some degree, there should be some kind of, even if the graph looks like this, there should be some kind of upward trend um, of growing in Christ, of his image being uh, displayed among us. And that they need to continue their labor in this because their labor is not in vain, because God's promises are real and true, and his promises are enough to drive us forward in faith until the end. And that is where we are in verse 13. He's kind of reinforcing that last statement. And so in the scriptures behind me here, let's dive into the word of the Lord this morning, beginning in verse 13. We're about to go back, way back in the book of Genesis to the story of Abraham. So when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. So God made a promise to Abraham 
and he swore by himself. We'll get to more on that a little bit later on today. His promise to Abraham was that he will have many children, this massive family, and this blessing will come through this massive family, and that to start things off, he's going to get a child in his old age. And it is through that child that this family would come forth to bless the world. Now, how long did Abraham have to wait for this promise to be fulfilled? 25 years. We put a few pages in the Bible, we don't get that, right? But this is a 25-year wait from the first time he was told this until its fruition. 25 years. So there's a reality here as we talk about God's promises and our trust problems, which I think the author is kind of bringing out of this here. God's work in our life can be slow. It can be long. It can be painfully long. And you and I need the patience, as he just said, Abraham waited on. Did you catch that? It said that, um, and so waiting, after waiting patiently, Abraham received the promised, the promise. So um, if we could summarize 2024 and just our, you know, culture today, we can definitely call us a patient culture, right? Of course not. So much of our questions, and this be, I want to be real and honest here this morning in this sermon, like so much of our struggles that can happen when it comes to our own relationship with God is kind of in here. I mean, how many Psalms start off with, how long, O Lord? Like, I've been waiting. Like, are you kidding me? Are you just going to show up and give all these promises, and how long must we sit here and wait, Lord? And I think we particularly struggle with this. In the Boston Globe recently, an article came out about this, um, this, this research project that was done about our lack of patience today. And here's some conclusions they came into. That this demand for instant results is just absolutely seeping to every single corner of our lives. We say, sure. Just listen to some of these data points here. Retailers are jumping at the same day delivery services. I was up at 4.30 this morning. I heard rustling outside of my front door. I was like, is somebody like opening my door right now? I saw a camera flash. It was Amazon, 4.30 on Sunday morning. And I was like, why is this guy working? And then I realized it's because I ordered something yesterday with next day delivery service like at 7 p.m. And it was my fault anyway. (laughs) Retailers are jumping into same day delivery services. Smartphone apps eliminate the wait for a cab, a date, or a table at a restaurant. Movies and TV shows begin streaming in seconds, but experts caution that instant gratification comes at a price that is making us less patient. We've come to expect things so quickly that researchers found people can't wait more than a few seconds for a video to load. One researcher examined the viewing habits of 6.7 million internet users. How long were subjects willing to be patient? Two seconds. After that, they started abandoning the site. Two seconds. After five seconds, the abandonment rate jumps to 25%. When you get to 10 seconds, half of everyone is gone. The results offer a glimpse into the future. As internet speeds increase, people will be even less willing to wait for that cute puppy video. The researcher who spent years developing the study worries someday people will be too impatient to conduct stories, studies on patience itself. Haha. But think about this, like, we'd be crazy to, to hear that and not think this actually has some effect on us today. Like, we'd be crazy to kind of laugh that off and say, well, it doesn't really affect 
me and how I pray and how I seek after God, how I read his promises and how I wait myself. Right? There's a great saying that comes from, you know, my love for Lord of the Rings from Treebeard, right? And in the two towers where Treebeard is this giant ent race of trees that are ancient trees, you know, and they're talking in their original ent- entish language. And, um, and there's this interesting saying when one of the hobbits are questioning about their own language. Treebeard says something like, in our ancient language, it takes a long time to say something because we don't say anything unless it is worth taking a long time to say and listen to. It's kind of a funny moment in the book, but there's some interesting insight about just words and language and conversations that happen there. Something that's worth taking a long time to say isn't worth saying, you know, something that does not take a long time to say isn't worth saying at all is what the implication is to that. And I want to just kind of piggyback on that and say, you know, there's no hasty work of God in your life. There's no hasty work of God in your life. And our impatient consumerism of today, I think, can shape how we view God's work, right? Um, there are, you know, sometimes we pray, sometimes we, we, we are engaging God, and it's like there are instant results, and we love those times. Like, I don't know if you've ever prayed for something, and it's like in five minutes, it's like, oh my goodness, like I just prayed for this. That happens, and it's amazing, but it's not like the everyday prayer experience, you know? That doesn't happen all the time. God's gracious to give us that when it does happen, but it's not, you know, the regular prayer experience. So the first call here this morning is, where is your patience with God's promises in your life? 25 years for Abraham. Where are you with that? Is there a hard crust around your own heart when it comes to um, um, uh, your own relationship with God because you're just kind of like, I don't know if I really believe the prayer thing, the promise thing. Like, I don't know. I'm just kind of still waiting for this to come. He says he's with me. Like, I just, I'm not feeling it. Well, what's happening right now? Is that you this morning? Hold on to that because we got a lot more to cover. Verse 16, the author continues on. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all arguments. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. So he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Now imagine absolutely trusting in people's promises and oaths in 24, especially when it comes to our elected leaders today. It's a campaign year. Aren't we excited to hear all the promises going to be made? And be like, "Uh uh-huh, I've been through this before. I know it's going to happen next year. We're going to forget about your promises and something else is going to happen. And then we're going to, you know, hope that we forget about that. I mean, we're so, if you look at these studies, right, like over the past 25 years, our trust in our government officials is just on a steep decline. Because, just for example, the past 20, I've looked at different quotes from the past four or five presidents about lowering our national debt. We're going to do that. Under every president, whoop, it goes up, whoop, it goes up, whoop. It's like, well, you, just, you said you were going to get rid of it, and you just doubled it, like in six months. Like, what, what happened? And this, we have trust issues with our government's leaders. 
right? We have trust issues. And remember the horrible pandemic times when we were taught and just kind of, we, in some respect, what you had to. It was a crazy time. We all know that. But we were all like not trusting of each other. Like I would get close to people like, no, I don't, don't get near me. Like I'm skeptical of you. Don't get close. Like we had to spend two years fighting that. Didn't that impact us to some degree, right? About people just like, just trusting other people. But listen to what scripture says. God made an oath to Abraham. He was speaking of that here. And that happened in Genesis 22. And the oath is really given for really Abraham's sake. It wasn't fully necessary for God to accomplish what he needed to accomplish, but he did it for the sake of Abraham because he wanted to make the unchanging nature of who he is as God of all things extremely clear to Abraham. Like he wanted to make it very clear to him. If you remember back in verse 13, it said that God swore to Abraham by himself. On his own name, God swore. That's like being on the playground as a kid. I swear by my mama, I'm going to blah, 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 blah. Right? The idea of like oath taking is finding something that's more perhaps bigger or more powerful than yourself and placing an oath on it. And it's like a power play that's trying to find a, a power that's bigger than you. In that case, in your fourth grade self, that was your mama, right? And so you swore that whatever. And so, but when God made an oath, what's greater than him? There is nothing greater than him. The verse reads like this in Genesis 22. By myself, I have sworn. That's not saying by myself alone over here. He's saying, no, on myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your only son. That's the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. You can look that up. He says, by myself, I have sworn, I will surely bless you. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore. By myself, I have sworn. God invoked his own name to confirm his oath. And it is impossible to lie. Therefore, his words are true. Now, it's really hard for us to grasp the concept of an oath, okay? To break an oath is not a big deal in today's day and age, right? To, to swear things on a Bible in the courtroom and then just knowing they're going to lie in like five minutes anyway, this is just like a, a ritual. Like, it doesn't matter anymore, you know? Like, lawyers tell their people, like, make sure you lie here, you know? Like, that's a thing. We'd, oaths have no meaning anymore, they really don't today. So we read about God making an oath. I'm not sure if that really has the impact that it's intended to have. His words go out, and because God is unchangeable, it means that they're going to happen. And there's no equal to that amongst humanity. Amongst our fallen world here, there's no equal to that. God, when he makes a promise, it simply means it's going to happen. And that is what he wanted Abraham to know and to see and to hear. I'm swearing in my own name, I'm going to make you a great nation. But I love verse 18 here. Because I think we hear that and we're like, man, is that really true? Like, seriously, I want this to be true. I want, I need this to be true, Lord, that your promises truly are unchangeable because you're unchangeable, Lord. I want to know this. And verse 18 is so good. I love it. Verse 18 says, we who have fled, when we hear this, he tells this story for us to encourage us, encourage the reader, 
And he says, because of the unchangeable nature of God's promises in his oath, he says, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Now, to flee means you're fleeing from something and you're running towards something else. I love the imagery, right? Because often that kind of feels like how life can be, you know? Um, We talked about the beginning, like we have trust issues and, you know, a lot of things can happen that's not our fault and people sin, but sometimes we become aware that when we have trust issues, there maybe was too much hope that we had placed on something or somebody. And then we find ourselves wanting to just flee from what that is. Like, I am fleeing towards something better. I am fleeing towards a better hope. Where is it? And he says, we're, we've done this. Like, we're fleeing, but we're taking hold of the hope offered to us that we may be greatly encouraged. Now, I want you to, he, he goes into some imagery here, so I'm going to set us up for this. I want you to imagine, like, these, we talked about this, this spiritually homeless kind of people, right? That they're, um, uh, they're also fleeing, looking. Like, where is hope? Where, where do I land here? And I want you to imagine this journey of fleeing to find this hope that God offers is like kind of jumping into a boat and you're looking out at the ocean knowing there's a, a hope destination and you jump in that boat and you're rowing in the direction of God's promises of deliverance and salvation, promises of his presence that he'll never leave us nor forsake us, that Jesus really did die for the sins of the world. He really did defeat and conquer death on that third day. His spirit really was sent down to his church and you're rowing towards that hope and it's hard work because the oceans is crazy. It's chaotic. The water Waters. Sometimes they splash in the boat and your legs and your socks and feet get wet and you wonder, was a boat going to capsize? Is this going to happen? And you look back and you realize there's not even coastline behind you anymore. Like, I don't know if you've been out kind of deep into the ocean where you realize like you're not just like at the beach swimming anymore. You're like, I'm really far away. And you look down and try to see through the waters and you're like, there's probably like two miles of like a void and like a whale beneath my feet right now. Like this... It's a, ter- it's a scary kind of thing to be that deep into the ocean. But imagine our scenario, that's, that's where you are. You're starting to feel very small and you're, you're wondering like, is there any like safety out here? Am I fleeing? Am I searching? Is there safety? The waters are crazy. Is there somewhere I can get some footing here, some ground in my search for hope towards God's promises? This is how fleeing can feel in your life. And I speak these things to say, like, is that you this morning? Is somebody here, multiple, are people, are you here this morning because you're kind of fleeing yourself? Like, you, you haven't abandoned God, you haven't abandoned your faith, but you feel like you're on that boat and you want to row towards him, but you're just like, you feel alone and isolated and the chaos is around you. You have hurt in that boat with you. The failures of others in that boat. Your own sin in that boat with you. The boat is leaking. There's two options. Offer up the prayer to, for God to send the chopper down with the rope ladder and just like snatch you out of the world. Like, get me out of here, Lord. I can't do this anymore, right? And that can be a tendency to want to pray something like that. I call it escapism, Okay. Um, just, Lord, whisk me away. I, I'm going to just wait until you just come and just whisk me away. Um, I, I truly think that that's not good theology. Um, th- the way the Bible talks about waiting for God is, is not waiting to be snatched away, but it's, it's, it's a call for endurance within the chaotic waters of fleeing towards God. 
The call that the scriptures have to, for us is to say you, 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 you must endure. You must press forward. And that's the second option here is not to escape the chaotic waters because those waters are always going to be there to some degree. But we need to find a sure and steady anchor that you can drop that will give you some footing and stabilize that boat and keep you grounded as the waves hit. In verse 19, let's move forward. We have this hope of God's promises as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So hope in God's promises are a sure and steady anchor for the soul. But what is the ultimate hope? What is that anchor of the soul? If you were paying attention, the anchor is a person. The anchor is a person. God's promises were made secure by a person. If you want to switch gears in the imagery like the author does here, this person in whom is our anchor went into the inner room of the sanctuary. This is temple language in the Old Testament. Um, There was this room in the middle, in the very deep middle of the temple. And that was where God's very presence was. And no human was allowed to go back there. But we all, everybody wanted to be in the very presence of God. But it was a, a terrible thing because you were a sinner. And sin had been dealt with. And you couldn't just walk in there. But Jesus did walk in there. It says he went there before us. And it entered on our behalf. He went behind the curtain. Indeed, we'll look at it in a minute. He tore that curtain and opened up the access to God. You see, when Jesus died, it said in Luke 23, that right as Christ was dying and breathing his last, this veil, uh, scriptures call it a veil, that makes me think of like the old school weddings with the veil that, you know, like not quite what the veil was. Um, I don't know if you've been to the Philadelphia Art Museum, um, in the, in the great big foyer there on the you know, right side of the wall, if you're walking in, there's a massive 17th century tapestry. It's about the Roman Emperor Constantine winning his victory in Milan. This tapestry is 24 feet high and 15 feet wide. Okay, you wouldn't call that a veil. It's like a massive piece of like threaded, you know, not even a curtain. Like it's a tapestry, it's huge. Okay, that is basically what was hanging in the temple. But this curtain was like as thick as a, a hand. Like, think mega curtain, mega veil, okay, huge. And it says when Christ was dying, that was a thing that separated us. When you think of that veil that was there in the inner place of the temple, it represented just our sin and everything that separated us from the very presence of God that we're so earnestly fleeing towards. And it said when he finally said it is finished and he died, that veil was ripped in half and torn and the access to the very presence of God was opened up for humanity. There's no more separation between God and man. And he went there on our behalf. That's why Paul could say in first, uh, 2 Corinthians 1.20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. No human being could simply walk, uh, do what Christ did. Christ is the one who paid for sin, who gave us access to God. And he is our anchor. 
which means we're in that boat in the, in the waters. When we find his anchor in the steady footing, what we're finding is through him, we have access to God. We have access to God. Now next, I'm going to summarize the whole next chapter 7 because it's a giant wormhole. I love wormholes. I'm a Bible nerd. Bible wormholes is the best. Um, you know, I don't know if you've been on like YouTube and get into like the YouTube wormholes. Like, I love the UFO wormhole. Anybody else? I was really hoping the Miami thing, did you hear about that, was real. Like 10 foot aliens walk around the mall. It wasn't real. I just like, I want it to be real. It'd be so crazy. It'd be cool. But it wasn't real. Anyway, this is like the YouTube, you know, wormhole of the author of Hebrews in chapter 7. Like he dives deep into some Old Testament stuff to, to point out this high priesthood of Jesus in the order of this person named Melchizedek. So you can read it in detail in your own time. I have summary points. I'm going to read through this and you can read along with me that will kind of set us up to say this is why all of our faith and hope can truly rest in the person of Jesus. So, what is, who is Mechizeldek? What does it mean that Jesus was our high priest? Here's the summary. The high priest had the special privilege of entering into that inner room, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was once a year on the Day of Atonement. In the Old Testament, priests were of the tribe of Levi, and the family of Aaron in that tribe had the privilege of being the high priest. Now, but way before any of this, um, Levi's great-grandfather, it would have been Abraham, he meets someone named Mechizeldek, who the scriptures call King of Salem and priest of God Most High. Now, Abraham blesses this man and takes a tenth of everything he owns and gives it to Melchizedek. Now, when Melchizedek shows up in the Bible, he has no recorded family history or genealogy. And the author of Hebrews says, basically, it's kind of like Jesus who had, you know, God as his father. Um, he had an eternal Genealogy, which makes his, this, this priest, Mechizeldek, like an eternal priest just like Jesus. And some people say Mechizeldek really was like the pre-incarnate Christ, but a different fun wormhole for a different wormhole day. Um, later on, Israel was to pay um, tithes to the tribe of Levi to support their priestly duties. But here, Abraham, the great-grandfather of Levi, pays a tenth to this person, Mechizeldek, even though this person, Mechizeldek, his family lineage was not Levi, showing that Mechizeldek is greater than Abraham, even himself. So if the ancient Levitical priesthood was a final word on the priesthood, who in the world was this guy? What order of priests did he belong to? Now, looking at Psalm 110, written many centuries after Abraham by King David, as David looked forward to the Messiah, Psalm 110, verse 4, says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, looking at the Messiah who was to come. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, when Messiah comes says the author, a change of priesthood was coming. If there was a change of priesthood, a change of law was also coming. Thus, a better hope is introduced, a Messiah who is also our high priest, not on the basis of family lineage, but on the power of an indestructible life. And God swore that this Messiah would be a priest like Mechizeldek, another oath from God, and God does not lie. And we'll close this summary by reading the last few verses of this chapter. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since the death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Woo, good wormhole. How are we doing?
We're good? Did you trace that? I hope so. It's great. So now I'll go even deeper and have a lot of fun with that. It's a wild ride. It's fascinating stuff. But here's how he concludes everything. And we're on the back end of our sermon now, beginning of verse 25. This is, he says, to tie up everything together, this is what the author says. Therefore, speaking of Jesus, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our needs. One who is holy and blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike any other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. What does this mean? If our hope is Jesus Christ, it means he is a permanent, perfect, holy high priest who even right now as we're in our boats of chaos, who is alive forever in his indestructible life, is thinking of you, interceding for you, hearing your prayers, and through his spirit is with you because that veil has been torn. Indeed, he is that sure and steady anchor. So hear me out. I think this is how we look at chapter seven. Your sure and steady anchor cannot be a church leader. It is not your favorite YouTube pastor, nor should it be myself. It should not be another human being that is the final word on the hope in your life. Jesus is that final word. He is that final hope. And I think we can rescue ourselves from a lot of hurt in our life if we, it takes some maturity. And I don't know how to like phrase this because I know that we're all kind of growing and we have this like human tendency to want to prop up people or institutions as the ideal and kind of just hope that they're that person. That person already came and we have to continually tell ourselves. Jesus is the final hope, and I'm living life in this boat, surrounded by a bunch of other people who are also weak like me, who are struggling with the same things that I'm struggling with, including me, and we're all chasing after God together, and they might hurt me sometimes, even out of their best intentions. This church may not be a perfect church, you know, we surely, well, not maybe, it's not, if, if, if I ever say that, you leave the church, please, you know, if we're the perfect church, that's your cue to get out of here, right? Like, we're not ever going to be a perfect church, but together we chase after the perfect one in whom he rests our final hope. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Because it entered Jesus. He entered the sanctuary behind the curtain. And Paul would go further to say this in Ephesians 2.13. He says, We were once alienated from God, separate from him, having no hope and without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so um, Alex and I, we had a long conversation yesterday, which is rare because usually we're interrupted every five seconds. But we managed to like have like a 20-minute conversation. It was awesome. It was great. And we talked deeply. 
just about our own longings the coming new year, kind of the sermon, just looking at our own life. And we were just sharing our own just desire and longing to have more of God. And just all this, the, the, the mundane things in life that sometimes we can blame or say, you know, this keeps me from that or this keeps me from more deeper prayer. This keeps me from, you know, serving others as I wish and blah, 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 blah. And which, they're all just like mundane, regular things because we have a family and there's a lot of time and responsibility there. And we were just talking about like, how do we really follow Jesus and cast our true hope on him in the midst of just the regularities of life? And I don't know all of the answers, but as we look at the simple word here that is here in our text this morning, it is this, that regardless of the difficulties of this, how mundane or intense they may be in your life, the answer is always the same and that we have to somehow like see this and grasp onto this and be, like train ourselves to be aware of this is that God is with us. Like right now he is with us. Maybe you don't, I don't know your stage of life and where you're at, but just the truth is that because of Christ he is with us. And friends, like do you live accordingly to that? Is your awareness radar on day by day? God is with me. What do I have to fear? Is that there in you, friends? Because that's the answer, and it is Jesus Christ who brought that. Now, I want to close with this story because I think it's amazing and I love it. Um, and then soon we're going to take communion. The early church in the city of Rome, there was a wide mass persecution, waves of persecution for following Jesus. And this is early on, right? And so for a lot of reasons, the Christians have been meeting in uh, catacombs beneath the ground. Now, you can still go tour these. I haven't seen them. I would love to see them. These catacombs not only served as a burial place for the Christians who, who passed away, but it served as their church building, like their hideout. We'll have our prayer services down here. And there's even stories of them like whispering their worship songs as to not, you know, have the, the audible, you know, sounds reach up so the Romans know where they're at. And so within these caves are some of the earliest Christian symbols that you can just imagine in the worship service. They're like chiseling away these symbols as a way to express their worship to Christ. And there's a couple of symbols, you know, that we may be familiar with today, one being the fish. But you know what they found a lot in this Roman catacomb? And here's one, an example behind us. It's an anchor. Now just imagine their situation persecution. Many of their friends are in jail. Some have even been killed. And how do they express their worship? Back to this verse. We have an anchor in the midst of the chaos. It is Jesus Christ. We have an anchor in the midst of the chaos. It is Jesus Christ. And the call this morning is to join in the ancient hope that millions before us have clung to. He is our anchor. He is with you and he loves you. Let me pray. Lord, we, we thank you for your word. And I pray, make your presence known in our lives, Lord. And I earnestly pray that, Lord. Do not hide your face, Lord. Open your face to us. May we see you, Lord. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.